Thank you for checking out this podcast from Mountain View Christian Center, a place to connect. How many of you know that God has promises for you? A couple of you, that's good. If you've been here at all in the last few weeks, you should know that. I've been, I've been preaching the same thing, not the same message, but the same thing. God's got a, he's got promises for you. In the, in the first Sunday when we talked about this, the, the, the gist of the first one was this. It's God's plan, it's his promise, but it's good. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights. God has plans for us, and they are good plans. But as much as he has plans and he has promises for us, we have the responsibility to go in and take possession of it. All right? God's not just going to you know, one day say, hey, I want to bless you with this. And, and then you just sit around on your haunches for the next 10 years wondering where it's coming from. You know, God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made promises to the people of Israel that they were going to have this promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God gave Abraham a, a heads up that it was going to be some 400 years that his, his ancestors would be enslaved in a nation. God was kind enough not to tell them which nation it was. He said, they're going to be slaves for 400 years, but when the time is up, when the times of the, of the Gentiles has come to its end, when, they, when their sin has reached its peak, then, then I will fulfill it. But you know, in that 400 years, he never once told them, sit back, relax, don't worry about it. You know, one day a train's going to come by, I want you to hop on the train and we're just going to blow through. What'd they do? They had to, they had to, leave Egypt. They had to walk through the desert. They had to trust the Lord. Because they didn't trust the Lord, their, their journey, which should have been about three months, ended up being 40 years. I don't know about you. I don't want to spend 40 years waiting on the promise of God when I can have it in three months, if that's his plan. Now, if his plan is to take me the long route, then that's his plan. Amen? But even when they, when they got to the edge of the promised land, God didn't just blow things over. He didn't just send a tornado, a hurricane, or whatever, and knock all the inhabitants out. He said, you've got to go in and take possession. And so it is for us today. God's got promises for us, good promises. He's got plans for us. But we, in 21st century America, we at Mountain View Christian Center, if we are going to see corporately or individually in our own lives, the blessings of God fulfilled, the plans that he has for us fulfilled, we've got to be ready to stand up and take it. Amen? So that's what this series is all about, taking possession of the promise. Step one was understanding that it's God's plan, it's a good plan, but we've got to take possession of it. Number two was, was remembering to be strong and courageous. It's both and, not either or. We need to be strong and courageous. And we talked about the, the, example that, the, the example that I used with Joshua as God was telling him, be strong and courageous. He needed both of these because he had no idea what he was heading into. God did. God was already there. But he had no idea the, the problems and the overwhelming odds that he was going to face. We talked about the, the provision of the manna stopping as soon as they get across the river. We talked about the fact that, that once they got across the river, 
where they're hemmed in with a raging river on one side and their enemy on the other. Then God says, now I want you to circumcise the men. We talked about the, the fear that could come from that. Joshua had to be both strong and courageous, and we too need to be strong and courageous. It's not either or, it's both and. If we're going to take possession of all that God's called us to. We need to know that others think about us, and we know, you know, we know the reality is that, that sometimes we're just overburdened with what other people think. You know, there's a, there is a, a what do they call it, a... Uh, I want to call it a problem. I think that's really what it is. Um, a disorder. A disorder that they've, that they've identified among the younger generation today. They call it FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. This is a, this is a serious thing. And I don't think that it's limited just to teenagers and 20-somethings. But with this, you know, I mean, we, we, we've all, we've all been affected by what people think of us. Now, let's face it. And, and, and the, the higher on the pedestal we put this person, the more their thoughts impact us. More people have been messed up by, by people of authority just saying mean things to them than, than anything else. But this, what's going on now is this fear of missing out with the advent of, of the Internet. And we've got Facebook and Instagram and all these different things. People will post something up and they're constantly going back and checking, does anybody like me? Does anybody like my status? And they, and they build, they have a tendency to build their self-worth, their confidence based on what other people are thinking. We need to get over that. I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle that. I'm saying this is a, this is a well-known fact that's going on, but we need to get over that, concern ourselves with what God thinks about us, and... If you remember from that message, when we draw close to the heart of God, he will at times give us insight into what people are really thinking. How many, time, how, how many of you know that sometimes a bully is a bully, not, not because he thinks he's big and bad, but because he's insecure and afraid? They're not going to come out and say, I'm going to pick on you because I'm insecure and afraid. You're going to come out and pick on you so that you think something else. The enemy is a liar and the father of lies. And he prowls around like a roaring lion. I just thought about this the other day. Like. Like. Similar to. Isn't it interesting that, that the Bible uses that analogy with Satan? What is Jesus considered? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is not like a lion. He is the lion. Satan roams around like a lion. All the bad parts, of, you know, the scary, the mean. But you know what? He's a defeated foe. And so as Joshua sent a couple of spies into Jericho to see what was going on. They had in their mind what the people were thinking because Jericho was putting on this, this big show, this big, you know, this big parade about how big and bad they were. But the spies get in there and they talk to Rahab and the truth comes out. We're scared to death. Ever since we heard that you were coming, our hearts have melted. And she, and she rattles off 40-year-old history. You get that. 
she rattled off 40-year-old history, something that happened with the Israelites 40 years before. Rahab was not there. She didn't see it. We don't even know if she was 40 years old at this time. We have no idea. But she remembers what the God of Israel did for his people 40 years ago, an entire generation ago, and it was enough to put the fear of God in her and everybody else. And not only that, she said, we heard about how, he, how the Lord brought you out of Egypt, how he destroyed the Egyptian army. We heard how he dried up the Red Sea for you to walk through. We've heard how he's provided for you. We've heard how nobody can stand against you. We heard recently what you did to Sion and Og, the kings of, on the other side of the river. And we are scared to death. We're trembling. You need to, you, we need to understand. We need to grab hold of this for a second. The enemy is scared because he knows he's defeated. He has a tendency to remember things that God has done for you that you have a tendency to forget. Well, let me put it this way. You and I have a tendency to forget. Sometimes we forget how God provided for us last week because this week we got some bad news. We have a tendency to forget how God saved me, delivered me, brought me through this, that, and the other five years ago because right now I'm going through something. The enemy doesn't forget. And he knows that if we would just tap in, if we would just grab hold, he sunk. Let's not be overly concerned with what others think, but let's be realistic about being aware of what the enemy thinks. He is afraid. He's afraid of a church that's on fire for Jesus Christ. We talked about whose side are you on? Big question that, that Joshua asked when he saw an angel standing there with a sword drawn. He wanted, hey, whose side are you? You on my side? We need to worry not about whether somebody's on our side, but whether we are on God's side. If I'm on God's side, I'm on the majority. That angel said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not on your side, I'm not on their side, I'm just on whoever's side is on the Lord's side. So come and join me. Let's join the Lord's side. And the last week we talked about the Aiken effect, the effect that one man had on the entire nation, his act of disobedience. We talked about the fact, though, that, that though it's a tragic story, it really, if we look deep, we understand, we can see the grace of God sown throughout the entire thing. God not wanting to destroy Achan, even though his sin cost the lives of 16 men. His sin cost the, the effectiveness of the nation. God still didn't want to destroy him. God said things like, tomorrow I'll deal with you. Present yourself. He who's caught will be destroyed. Big difference between being caught and confessing. God doesn't want us to get caught. Don't get caught with your hand in the cookie jar, and that doesn't mean become a better sneak. It means stop sneaking. Confess. Because the grace of God is there. I'm going to move on today. I'm trying to figure out this is, this is the sixth. I don't think I've ever done a series that has lasted six weeks. This will be a record. And I've got another one after this and another one after that. So... I'm just going to keep nailing you as the Lord nails me. Fair enough? All right. Grab your Bibles. Let's hold them up. 
This is the word of God. It's able to make me wise. It's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And this message is for me. Amen. Father, thank you so much for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I pray that you give us hearts, Lord, to receive what you have, ears to hear what is being said. Lord, I pray that you would grant a, a boldness to rise up within us. Father, that we would grab hold of all that you've grabbed hold of us for. Jesus, we commit ourselves now in your precious name. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about keeping it fresh. We need to keep it fresh. Fresh bread is better than stale bread. Now, second day lasagna is kind of, I don't know, personally, I like second day lasagna better than first, but, but typically, fresh is better. We want it fresh. We want it good. Now, we're going to look at, at uh, Joshua chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 30 through 35. We're going to talk about how they kept it fresh. As a, as a little bit of a prelude, you know, last week we talked about how Achan uh, caused a lot of problems, but they, they took care of the problem because, you know, Achan wouldn't confess, and so he had to be destroyed, and everything that he had was destroyed. After that, they went up against Ai, and they completely destroyed the city of Ai. I mean, made it a pile of rubble. Completely destroyed. So this happens after that, starting in verse 30 of Joshua chapter 8. It says, Then... So after that battle, then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, a servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it, they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses, which he had written. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it, the priests, who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them stood in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, a servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law and blessed the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. We've got to get a picture in our, in our heads about what's going on here. They came in, they had these battles, they had these wars, they've had some good times, some bad times, some victories, some defeats, some issues, and now that they've destroyed I, instead of just throwing a big party and resting for a week or so, Joshua proceeds to build an altar to the Lord. He's wanting to keep things fresh with God. We need, we need to do this. He built this altar in accordance to a command that Moses gave him. We can see it way back in Deuteronomy chapter 27. I would encourage you to write that down and you can go and look at it. But essentially what Moses was saying, when you get into the promised land, you need to go to these two mountains. 
You need to have half the people stand on one side, half the people stand on the other side. You're going to build yourself an altar out of uncut stones. Don't put an iron tool to it. Build this altar. And then he says, I want you to take a pile of stones, and I want you to set them up, and I want you to coat them with plaster. And in front of everybody, you write the words of the law, the commands of God on that. This is a big deal. This was their, really, this is their first church service in the promised land. And you think I talk a long time sometimes. You just imagine having to stand there, half of you on, on one mountain and half of you on the other mountain, while Joshua builds an altar, covers it, mixes up plaster, covers it with plaster, waits for it to dry. You're standing there. I don't know what song should we sing now. Therefore the redeemed. Come on. Yeah. You're running out of songs because it's taking a while. Your kids are getting a little bit restless. You're getting a little tired. You're standing up. You're sitting down. You're not sure what to do. Plaster finally dries, and he pulls out a pen, and he starts to paint the commands of God. Word for word. What Moses had brought down from the mountain. Word for word. You need to understand, the law is not just the Ten Commandments. That's the top ten. That's, I, I refer to that as the top 10, but there was a lot of other stuff that's involved in the law. He wrote it all out while the people were standing there. Can, can you maybe abbreviate your shorthand? What? Is there any LOLs in there? What did he say? He gets done with it. And then he proclaims blessing and curse. Blessing for obedience. Curses for disobedience. Wow, the people, this wasn't something that was just between God and the leadership. This was between God and his people. He didn't say, Joshua, you build this thing and then tell the people what you did. No, you get the people involved. They need to keep it fresh. Church today, we need to keep it fresh. You know, they had, they had had some bad times. I mean, their, their time in the promised land wasn't all awesome. We, we just talked last week about the fact that the, they fought a battle that they lost. But they chose to honor God. They chose to take this day and make it special. They chose to be obedient to the command that, that had been pronounced years before. And as much as they needed that connection with God and they needed to be refreshed on that day and they needed to put all their worries and all their concerns and all their fears aside and stand there and honor God. As much as they needed to do that, we need to do that today so that we can stay fresh. I talked to a lot of people about um, you know, their marriages about their relationships or marriages falling apart. And it's a, it's a shame today when you, when you consider statistics tell you that half of every marriage ends in divorce in America. They tell you that the numbers, and whether or not they're accurate or not, they tell you that the numbers inside the church are just as bad as the numbers outside the church. And, and I have a tendency to believe you can, you can look at those numbers and you got to look at pre-conversion, post-conversion. But anyway, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is there's probably nobody in this place today whose life has not been affected directly or indirectly by a divorce. 
And I have people ask me at times, you know, what can we do about it? How can we, how can we keep from getting into these kinds of situations? And I think that the, the best thing that I, can, that I tell people, besides keeping the Lord involved in your relationship, is keep it fresh. You know, one of the biggest problems that happens in, in relationships, once we get married, we stop dating. We should never stop dating our spouse. I don't care if you've been married for five months or 50 years. Keep it fresh. Remind yourself of the things that, that was exciting about that person when you first met. Remember what it was that, that caused you to want to spend time with this person. It made you, at one point, want to say, I do. Keep it fresh, guys. I'll pick on guys because I'm a guy. Guys, you know what? You asked that lady out at one point. And you know what? As I look around, every single one of us in this room is old enough that it was the right thing for the guy to ask the girl out. And you asked him out in person, not over some goofy text or on Facebook. You asked him out in person, and you know what? If you're a real man, if you're, if you're a big boy, you went and you met her parents, but you were willing to go through all of that because there was something about her that made you go, whoa, yeah. And you didn't date in secret. I mean, I tell you what, when Deb told me she would go out with me, king of the world, I wasn't going to just go out and see her. Man, I want everybody to see. Look at this. Yeah, look at you didn't think I could get a girl. Like, look at this. Come on. I am way over, way over married. All right. God bless me huge. But there was something about her. So why, once you get married, do you just start taking her for granted? Stop it. Take her out on a date. Make her dinner. I don't care if you burn it. I don't care if she has to scrape the toast and clean it off and you burn the water. Make her dinner. You know what? I, was, I almost said rubber feet, but I'm not going to say that because Deb asked me to rub her feet the other day. And I said, no, that's gross. So I would be a hypocrite if I told you to rub your wife's feet. But, you know, rub her back. Do something. Do something that she... Now, don't do something that she doesn't enjoy. You know, don't invite her to come along on something you know she's going to hate. But do something that she's going to enjoy. Spark that a little bit. Come on, guys. Don't just survive your marriage. Make your marriage thrive. Now, ladies, I'll pick on you because I'm married to one. Talk to your man, not about him. All right? Let him know what it is that you want. Remember what it was that made you say, yeah, yeah, I'll go out with you. Even if you were just taking a chance. Try to stir up those feelings and, 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 and don't, you know, I, I use the term feelings, but don't worry about feelings because life is not made up of feelings. Life, feelings affect us, but they should not drive us or direct us. But try to remember what it was about him. You might have to, you know, remember, close your eyes and remember when he had hair. You might have to pull out an old picture and remember when his beard wasn't white. 
before he got that furniture disease and his chest fell into his drawers. But you know what? A lot of that's your fault because you're a good wife and you've fed him and you've taken care of him. and You gave him kids and made him pull his hair out at times. Remember what it was that drew you to him and go back and do the things that you did at first. Go back and make the effort like you used to make the effort. How many of you guys had to, on occasion, wait a half hour or more because she wasn't ready, because she was still getting ready, because she wanted to look good for you? You don't have to show me your hands because I know you're sitting next to your wives. Ladies, some of you used to, used to spend a lot more time trying to impress your husband than you do now. It wouldn't hurt the relationship if once in a while you said, I'm going to take some time. I'm going to keep it fresh. Okay? Just, that's free. That's free. And as much as we need to keep our marriages fresh and our relationships fresh, that wasn't a rabbit trail. It's part, part of the message. We need to keep our relationship with the Lord fresh. Revelation, Jesus spoke to one of the churches and he says, you know, I know all about you. I've got a few things against you. Here's one of them. You've lost your first love. What was he saying? You don't love me like you used to love me. How do I know? Because you don't do what you used to do. There's a cure. Go back and do what you did at first. Keep it fresh. Enjoy time in my presence, the Lord would say. And so God gave us a command. He gave it to the Israelites years ago. It's the very, very first blessing that's pronounced in Scripture. God created everything in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And so he blessed that day, and he called it the Sabbath and he blessed that day, made it special, and then passed down the command to the Israelites that they need to honor the Sabbath. We've been given one day every seven, every seventh day to stop and honor God, to be reminded of his law, to be reminded of his expectations, to be reminded of his plan and his blessings, which we've already said are good. It does us well once a week at a minimum to be able to come in and shake off the worries and the frustrations and the doubts and the lies of the enemy who's been lying from the very beginning and remind ourselves that God is good and his plan is good and everything he does for me is good. And even the things that he allows me to go through that don't look so good, don't feel so good, don't seem so good, the Bible says he's got a plan for that and all that he does that he allows you to go through, he's going to turn for good. But if I spend all of my time at work, all of my time at play, all of my time doing my own thing, when am I going to be reminded of that? Probably not. So he gave us that seventh day. Mark chapter 2, verse 27. We need to get some perspective on the Sabbath, because I'll tell you what, there's the Pharisees... Way back when, they had a problem with, with turning everything into law and legalism, turning everything into religion, and, and God was looking for relationship. And we have groups today that turn everything into law and legalism. 
let's get some perspective. Let's listen to what Jesus had to say about the Sabbath. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, just grab hold of this for a second. Those words came out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus is God. Are you tracking with me? Who was it that made the command about the Sabbath, about honoring the Sabbath? God, also known as Jesus. So the same one who made the command to honor the Sabbath is now saying, look, you missed the point. Here, let me break it down for you. The Sabbath was made for you. You weren't created for the Sabbath. In other words, there is a benefit to you if you'll grab hold of it. I want to, I, I was, I was looking at ways to bless the very first man and woman. I was looking at ways to, to bless creation. And so after I created man on that sixth day, and I had created all the animals and everything else, and I created the sun and the moon, and the sun, after I had created all of that six days, I was done with everything. And I thought, now what can I do to bless man? Know what I'll do? I'll just add another day to the week. You realize he could have, we could have had a six-day week. And we'd all be older. We could have had a six-day week with no weekend. Who wants that? Could have had a six-day, you know, you give him six days to work. God in his infinite wisdom, and, and please understand, in his compassion and his love for you, he said, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to give you another day. And I'm going to lead by example because God is a leader. And I'm going to lead by example. I'm going to rest. On that seventh day, I'm going to show you how it's done. Boom. I bless the day. Now I want you to follow my example. I want you to rest and enjoy this. But it, it just seems strange to me. It's sad. It seems sad that God would have to make it into a form of a command that, he, that, that we have become so hard-hearted, that, that mankind became so hard-hearted, so perverse, that God had to make it into a command that we rest. But I thought about it. I was thinking about it the other day. I was, I was writing this out. I thought, you know, sometimes we've got to make rules for our kids that they don't understand that later they grab hold to. Like, check this one out, nap time. When I was a kid, I hated naps. I thought that was punishment. What in the world have I done that I have to take a nap? It's, it's a nice day, I'm not even tired. Catch that, that was supposed to be like a yawn. <laughs> you can tell you're not much of an actor when you have to cue the people. Scratch that off the list of things I might do. Um, 
But I thought it was a punishment, and kids today think it's a punishment. My kids didn't want to take naps. My grandkids don't want to take naps. They, they do everything they can to not take a nap. You know what I want? I want a nap. Because I'm 47 years old, and I have earned it. And I promise you, I'm going to go home today, and after I eat, I am going to fall asleep, and I am going to take a nap. Praise the Lord. It is not a punishment. It's a blessing. What am I going to do for that 20 minutes anyways? If I'm awake, I'm going to fight it. I'm going to watch some TV that I don't... I'm going to waste it. Is what I'm going to, so I might as well get some benefit out of it and get some rest. Be the nappiest, nappy guy ever. Oh, boy. The Sabbath is kind of the same way. You know, it's something that, that for some reason God had to command us because we just don't get it. We think that God's trying to be mean to us. We think that God's trying to restrict our lives. We think that God's trying to, trying to mess with us and not give us freedom. And, and I think Jesus is sitting there just doing a face palm. He said, man, I came to give you life and give it to you abundantly. I'm the one that created you. I'm the one that designed you. I made all the days. I made an extra day for you so you could rest. You know what? So you can come and rest in my presence. Because I know those other six days, you're busy working. And if you live in America, you're busy being blessed. Let's not ever forget that. We are, we are spoiled blessed. But we have a standard five-day work week, so we got like two days, most people. We're blessed. We're not necessarily eating because we're breaking our backs. I'm not saying you don't work hard. I'm just saying we're, we're blessed. And even with all of that, God says, you know what? I still want to bless you more. I've given you the Sabbath, or now the Sabbath principle. You know, we're not going to get, I'm not going to get all stuck on the word Sabbath, because that really, that's Saturday. Who cares? New Testament Paul said, to one man, one day is, a, is more important than the others, and to another man, they're all the same. But what is important is the principle of gathering together with God's people on a regular basis, once a week, in his presence, to worship him, to praise him, to learn, to get our batteries recharged, to go out and be the church. Let's get this mentality out of our head about going to church. Let's start concentrating on being the church. Okay, so let's, let's think about this. Let's look at this. Satan lies to us concerning the Sabbath principle. Whether by telling us that it's just an Old Testament law and it's not pertinent anymore, or providing gobs of entertainment opportunities, job responsibilities, or even using other believers or the church to encourage infighting over the proper observance of the Sabbath. That's the work of the enemy, to destroy, divide, and conquer. He does this, again, because he knows the power of a rested, refreshed, and refueled believer. He does this because he understands the importance of resting in the presence of the Lord. Satan wouldn't work really hard to mess something up, to, to get us focused off of, off of something if it wasn't important and if it didn't cost him. 
He does it because he fears the power and the authority of a unified body of believers. Unity is so important, it's ridiculous. You can gather a thousand people together in the same building, call it a church, but if we're just fighting and arguing with each other, how effective is that going to be? The very first problems that the church encountered, the, the early church after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as they're seeing miracles happen day after day, the problems that they encountered was disunity. Why? Because the enemy knows that if I can divide, I can conquer. I think, I think denominations is a, is a work of the enemy. I don't think that was ever God's plan. God wanted believers. He wanted men and women who loved him and accept him and follow him. We're all broken up over sects and denominations. Born-again Christians saved by grace. I happen to worship at an assembly of God church. But I also happen to know there's a lot of other good, solid Christian churches out there that are doing good work. We need to be united. I want us to consider just a few things, a few of the promises that are given to those who gather in the name of the Lord. A little bit of motivation here, perhaps. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 19 says this, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it'll be done for you by my Father in heaven. What's the key there? Agree. Who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. How do we know that? Because the non-believers weren't listening to him. He's talking to the believers. The Bible was written to believers. It was written to the church. It wasn't written to, to pagans, heathens, and, and atheists. Why? Because they're not going to pick it up. It's written to us. And so Jesus said, I tell you the truth. If two of you come together and agree, you can ask for anything, and my Father in heaven will do it for you. Let's go down to verse 20. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am. Do we have to have a thousand people gathered for the Lord to show up? No. 500? No. One? No. Two or three. It can be a small group, but again, we need to come together. That's a, signity, a signifier of unity, that we come together. And what is our unity based on? The name of the Lord. If two or three of you come together in my name, I'm there. So guess what? It doesn't even have to happen in a building that says church. We get together at Force Fellowship. Guess who else is there? The Lord. We run into each other in the store and pray for one another. We're there. To, guess who's there? The Lord. This is, this is not just a 
a wish. This is a promise from the Lord. If you'll gather together, if you'll come together, two or three, I am there. Look at what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's Old Testament, so you're going to have to jump back a little ways. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. Although one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. It's talking about the importance of unity. These aren't three strands that are standing separately. They're, they're still individuals. One can be overpowered, but two can take a stand. And three, <laughs> you're not going to break that very easy. There is promise, there is purpose, there is hope in gathering together and being united with one another in keeping it fresh. Consider the other things that happened in the book of Acts when the church joined together. Talked about the outpouring in Cornelius' home. Talked about people praying and being healed and, and raised from the dead. Paul raised the guy from the dead because he preached so long he fell asleep and fell out the window and died. I don't know. I've never killed anybody with my preaching. I don't intend to. And I'm, I, I, I'm wondering about Paul, you know, I mean, if this happened to me, Somebody falls off the balcony here and dies. And God is gracious enough to allow me to raise them from the dead. I don't know if I'm going to want to get back up and, and continue on preaching. Or if I'll just say, hey, praise the Lord, go home, get some sleep. I don't know how many of you would stick around or if you'd take off and, you know, go get ice cream. But Paul, when he saw that, he just said, hey, we're going back to preaching. This is good. And everybody stuck around. And I think even Eutychus stuck around. I don't think he went home. I think he, he probably didn't fall asleep, or at least he didn't sit by the ledge anymore. But think about the great things that happened in the book of Acts. Now, now the church went through a lot of difficult stuff in the book of Acts. But they stuck together. They refreshed themselves. In fact, they took it to the next level. If you read in chapters 1 and chapter 2, it's, it's mentioned in a couple places that they got together, the church got together on a daily basis. How's that for a mind blower? They weren't satisfied with just one day a week. They weren't even satisfied being extra holy and having church twice a week. But there was some, and I'm not going to say all 3,000 or all 5,000. I believe this is where we see the, the importance of small groups. I had somebody ask me the other day, does your church do small groups? I say, yeah, we call it Sunday morning service. Um, because we are a small group. <laughs> small, small groups are for when you're a little bit bigger and you can break down into this one. And they're great. And they did it in the early church, 3,000, 5,000 people, whatever the numbers were. But they didn't say, you know what, we're happy with one day or two days a week. They got together every day. Why? Because there was, believe me, people were not that different back then. They dressed different. They, they talked different. They rode camels instead of cars. But you know what? They worked hard six days a week, sun up to sundown, and then they'd go home to, 
make their meals and this and that. And you don't, you don't read about it. Maybe some of the people were saying it. Maybe probably some of the kids. Probably the kids were whining and complaining. But you don't read about it in the book of Acts, any of them saying, oh, I just worked too hard. I'm too tired to go. They found it beneficial. They found it fun to get together. So after work, they'd get together. And it may have only been a half hour. It may have been 20 minutes. I don't know. You don't know. It might have been three hours. They said, this is something that's fun. And I tell you what, church, we need to start having fun in church. I really think boring is sinful. It should be number 11 on the top 10. Thou shalt not be boring. You got to say it in the King James because that's, you know, more official, I guess. So let's move forward and look at some of the benefits of being together. Consider what the Lord says about being together. Ephesians chapter 4. And Ephesians chapter 4 is really, it's, it's grabbed hold of a lot um, because it talks about the gifts. It talks about the gifts of pastors and apostles and prophets and so on and so forth and the responsibility that they have. But I want to drop further down. Instead of, instead of starting at verse 11, well, I guess we can start at 11. That's not what I want you to grab hold of. Let's start there. Verse 11, it was he who gave. So it was the Lord who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, I will stop right there and say, the work of the pastor, the evangelist, the prophet, whatever, is to build the body so the body does the work of the ministry, does the work of Christ so that the church can be built up. Okay, verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we all have a responsibility. No matter how long we've been saved, we've got a responsibility to do the work of the church. And the church will never be as strong as it needs to be until we're all doing the work of the church, until we're all doing our part. So verse 17, so I tell you, or rather verse 14, then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Joined and held together. Highlight that word, together. This is not a one-man show. This is not a group of leaders show. We are the body of Christ. And we have to work together. Every ligament every muscle, every tendon, every joint doing its part. There's a benefit in unity. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 6. And I know when you get there and you read it, you're going to say, well, why is he talking about marriage again? 
God saw fit to use the analogy of marriage when referring to the body of Christ. And in light of that, look at what he says in Matthew 19, 6. I'm just going to read the, the tail end of it. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And we apply that to marriage as we should, because that was the context of what Jesus was saying. But is it not also applicable to the church? What God has joined together. What did Jesus die on the cross for? What did he say he was going to build? His church. I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. I will build my church. What God has joined together, the church, let man not separate. Not just bad man on the outside, but good man on the inside looking for excuses to stay home and watch the game. I'm not picking on people. I, I will watch the game. It's being recorded. But understand this whether bad men on the outside or good men on the inside, if we are not keeping it fresh with the Lord, if we are not constantly drawing close to him and finding favor in the Lord and finding rest in the Lord, we're going to get caught up in listening to the lies of the enemy and deceived into believing that what he has out there for us is more important and more exciting than what's in here. And I'll tell you what, he's having a heyday. And we as the church for a hundred years in America have played into his hands. For a hundred years or more, we have been very pharisaical. We've looked at rules and regulations and legalism and we've stopped having fun in the presence of God. We need to change that. Marriages break up because we stop dating. We stop having fun. Believers fall away because they stop dating the Lord and stop having fun. Oh, remember how great it was to know that your sins were washed away? Remember how great it was to have this fresh relationship with Jesus and you didn't care who knew, you wanted to tell people. Remember how fun it was to be able to join with that group of people that, that a month ago you thought were nutty and wacky and were just crazy, but all of a sudden you kind of got a hold of what they've been, the Kool-Aid they've been drinking. It's pretty good stuff. Remember when serving the Lord was fun. You know what? Unfortunately, I'll bet you there is a number of people that in this church, believers, people who have surrendered their lives to the Lord, would say, no, I, I, I don't remember that. God help us. We need to change. We need to have fun. We need to enjoy the Lord's presence. We need to look forward. What's it going to take for us to start looking forward instead of looking forward to Friday to start looking forward to Sunday? Instead of looking forward to sleeping in, looking forward to staying up a little bit later. Hey, we're going to get together on Wednesday night. We're going to 
maybe eat some food, play some games. We're going to have a little Bible. So we're going to have some fun. What's it going to take for us to begin living the life and taking possession of the promise that God has for us? We've got to keep it fresh. We've got to stir it up. We've got to allow the Lord to stir our hearts. So what God has joined together, let man not separate. And as if it was written, this is my last reference for the day, as if it was written in the 21st century, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Written way back in the first century. Way back then people were getting bored. Way back then they were giving up. We're in the 21st century. We got our challenges ahead of us. We got our, our issues, our things that we deal with. But you know what? My Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That Jesus came to give me life and give it to me abundantly. That he wants me to have a good life here on earth as well as a great eternity in heaven. If our hope in Christ is limited only to when we die, I think we're to be pitied of men. That's not in scriptures, that's Brandon. If our only hope in Christ is for when we die, then we're to be pitied among men. I believe that Jesus wants us to have a good time now. We gotta keep it fresh though. We gotta love him and do it his way. Would you stand with me this morning? Maybe I can get Shirley to come and play something. I just want to, this is what I want to do this morning. I'll say this, but don't let it, don't be guilt driven, although it's going to be hard to not be. And believe me, I'm, I'm looking you in the eye. I, I love you. I love this church. I love, I love you as individuals. But we, we need to come together. We need to keep it fresh. I think all of us could benefit from a little bit of time at the altar, just, just coming down, just praying, just loving on the Lord. You might have to ask him to forgive you for letting it become dull and dry. It wasn't him that moved. You might have to ask him to forgive you and to restore that joy. For more information, you can find us online at www.mountainviewchristiancenter.net.